So tonight you can open your Bibles, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. And as you're turning there, one uh, final thing too, Samaritan's Purse, we're collecting still, cannot believe how much stuff came in. In August, you guys are above and beyond generous. It was almost like Exodus where they brought too much stuff. I don't know where to put it. So it's awesome. So in September, we're, bringing, we're collecting personal items like toothbrushes, bars of soap, washcloths, hair accessories, brushes, combs, sunglasses, flip-flops, hats, t-shirts, stuff like that for the shoeboxes, the Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes. And so uh, let's just keep pouring it on because... I just can't wait to get to heaven and see how much fruit we get from those shoeboxes as a church. It's going to be pretty special. All right. As we come to Luke chapter 14, Jesus is moving steadfastly to Jerusalem to make his triumphant entry and the week of ministry that happens there. And then there's the uh, rejection, the crucifixion, and his rising from the grave, the completion of his purpose in coming to always do those things that please the Father and to die for our sins and to rise from the grave for our justification and hope. So it's a lot of conflict. We're seeing that as we're really in the heart of Luke's gospel. And as we pick it up in chapter 14, we saw where Jesus last week was at that dinner conversation, right? at the dinner table. And everyone, you know, it was awesome. It was such a cool study where the conversations going on at the dinner table where there was conflict. But yet Jesus is just like, hey. And he told that parable where people were invited and like, oh, I'm too busy. I got, I just, you know, I got some cows. I just got married and you know, all the excuses. And we talked about that. So as we come to the back part of this chapter, we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Verse 25, chapter 14. A very powerful passage of scripture we're going to read, and a very challenging one, and some degree a unique one. Now a great now great multitudes went with him that is Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, And even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So, again, a very powerful scripture. Now, as we go through Luke's gospel, the topic of discipleship, that is being a disciple, a learner from Jesus, comes up in various capacities, in various ways. And we've already seen that we need to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. We saw that earlier on in Luke. And here again, we get uh, bearing our cross now, contextually, a few things to think about. A great multitude, or great multitudes. Years ago, we went to Virginia, and we started Calvary Chapel Hampton Roads. I was 29 years of age, and um, very young and green in ministry. 
And there we planted that church in the Bible Belt in a, a strip mall shopping center in 1991 during uh, Desert Shield and then Desert Storm, that first Persian Gulf War. A lot of military families and uh, taught, taught through the Gospel of Matthew, saw a lot of people with diverse religious backgrounds and denominational backgrounds there in the Bible Belt coming out to our church. And I realized early on as a senior pastor that you could pretty much offend anybody at any study when you teach through the Bible verse by verse. And as we progressed through that first year and the church was growing rather quickly, especially for a Calvary Chapel, an unknown entity in the Bible Belt at that time, you know, the church was growing and things were happening. And then we went through some really difficult times where the church was uh, ripped apart and it was a very difficult time that first year. And as we began to just go forward from, uh, in a sense, just a, 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 a plundering of people, there's another way to put it, it was a very difficult time, <clears throat> that we began to go forward into early 1992. It was before Leah was born, because Leah was born in July of 92. So Jennifer would have been pregnant with Leah. <clears throat> uh, that the Lord really put on my heart as a senior pastor planning church. And he, it was just one of those times when you know the Lord gives you a choice. Like, he says, well, you, you can do this, you can do that. Or he gives you two roads or two things to consider. I'll never forget what the Lord really put on my heart. He put on my heart that, are you trying to build a big church and make churchgoers? Or are you trying to serve me and make disciples? Well, which is it? Because if you're trying to build a, a big church, now there's nothing as big churches. Pastor Chuck's my favorite pastor of all time, and he pastored an extremely large church and great movement. But it's not the normal, and it's not even really a biblical model, because there is no biblical model of that, actually. And, but as a pastor, you're always like, hey, you know, build bigger barns, or they say, like, build bigger barns and more people will come. And there's all these different sayings that pastors or people in ministry vocationally might say about their calling and their ministry. And I just I remember when the Lord just put on my heart so clearly, are, what are you trying to do here? Like, are you trying to have churchgoers, or are you trying to obey me and make disciples? Because they are distinctly opposed to each other. If you're trying to make disciples, that's a very clear objective, which is the Great Commission. But you have to be careful as you're trying to make churchgoers to build bigger barns and, and the things that go with that and what you capitulate or compromise to accomplish that. And I concluded, well, Lord, quite obviously, I don't know what I'm doing anyways, so at least I might as well be doing the right thing. You know, so let's make disciples. Let's, let's make that our objective. That was important because that was the fourth year of being a pastor and the first year of being a senior pastor at the end of the year when we built something up and it all fell apart and then we had to rebuild again. And I've kind of let that guide me in what I'm doing. You know, we're preaching the gospel, trying to make disciples. We're trying to emulate the life of Christ and how we carry ourselves in marriage when we were young and we were young parents with young kids. Then we became older and we had older kids and now we're much older and we have adult kids and grandkids and we're still trying to emulate, show Christ, how we live our lives for Christ in our marriage over 30 years, how we work things out with our adult children, trying to figure that one out, right? And just all, just trying to let Christ be real, like Brit Merrick would say, Jesus is reality, and letting the reality of Christ be in our life day to day, and how we carry ourselves. We don't come here and try and manufacture something, be something we're not. We just try and be who we are sincerely and transparently in the Lord, and to be 
all in with Jesus and do the best we can to discern and recognize what he's doing in our lives individually, myself, the pastoral leadership, the deacons, the ministry team, the body of Christ, one another, all of us here, and just seeking to be obedient as best we know how on a daily basis. We are disciples of Jesus, and we seek to make disciples of Jesus through the teaching of the word, praying for the congregation, and how we live our lives and how we serve one another, not just in leadership to congregation, but uh, to one another. Stirring up love and good works, being built up into him who is the head, Christ Jesus, uh, speaking the truth in love and being built up into him. This is important, and I share this because Jesus was being followed by a multitude. And when a multitude thinks that Jesus is like David carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to establish the kingdom, it's easy to get a multitude to follow you. When the multitude thinks that you're going to establish the kingdom and drive out Roman oppression, everyone wants on board. When your stock is climbing, everyone wants to buy your stock. When your stock is climbing, John and James will send their mom to you and ask if they can rule on your right hand and your left hand. When everyone thinks that you really are because you're the son of David, you're going to maybe dance when you come into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, and all Israel's going to have a big party, and everyone's going to get raisin cakes and food, and everyone's going to go home happy, and they're going to make that commitment to the Lord, and it's going to be sunshine, butterflies, and sand dollars in Tel Aviv. It's all good. Little puppies in the streets of Jerusalem. It's a happy day. Everyone wants to be on board with that. Everyone loves, you know, forgive one another. We should. It's at least an, ideo- uh, an ideology or thought process that we value. The idea of, like, being a peacemaker and inheriting the earth. People love that stuff until you're being put to death because of your identity with Christ. And then that multitude gets weeded out. Jesus wasn't trying to make churchgoers. He wasn't trying to make another sect of Judaism. He's the Son of God by whom for whom and in whom are all things sustained and held. He is Lord of the universe. He is the supreme Lord of the universe. And everything in this universe that you can see and understand was made by him and for him and given to him by the Father. He's the heir of all things and he's the judge of all things. And every cell in your body from the first cell at the point of conception in your mother's womb says, ownership, Jesus Christ. We are sustained by Jesus Christ. He is the creator and the sustainer. And every breath that we have, whether we serve him with that breath or rebel against him with that breath, we have that breath because Jesus Christ wonderfully allowed us to be made in our mother's womb, Psalm 139, like David described. And it's for that purpose, like I said last week, there's only two purposes we're alive. One, to be saved, and two, to fulfill the purposes of our being saved with the call of God on our life, in our timeline, in our days, in our generations. It's the only reason we're alive, to, to know him and to serve him. That's the purpose of the human experience. And we're here tonight because most of us know him. And most of us are at least reasonably putting forth quality effort to serve him as best we know how. In the obvious of what his word says for all believers and in the subtle of what he's leading us by his spirit in our personal lives and decisions we need to make in our personal lives on a day-to-day basis as days become weeks, months, and years. The great multitudes love events and happenings but when jesus is bloodied and beaten and publicly humiliated and scorned and hanging on a cross for the sins of the world people get scattered people who are sure they would never deny the lord deny the lord like peter 
People will run with their clothes off to get away from the fear of what's going to happen against them, like the young disciple whose robe was pulled off of him and he ran. People do weird things. They cut off ears. <laughs> you know, like people do just, they cut off ears and then deny the Lord within six hours or eight hours. It's, it's crazy. The multitude cannot be what we're looking for or what we choose to be a part of. Discipleship is you and the Lord for all eternity. Discipleship is me and the Lord for all eternity. It's us growing together in the Lord, but we all stand, we're made by the Lord and we stand before the Lord individually. No one's lost in the crowd. You could be lost in the crowd of uh, 100,000 people at a rock concert in the 70s, but God knows the hairs on your head. He knows who you are. He knows everything going on in your life. In 1970 and in 2018. So the fact that Jesus turns to the multitude, he's actually, you know, you got to sense that he's weeding out the multitude here. He's just going to weed it out, right? Like when my son Luke applied for the police department in Newport Beach, 1,200 applications for six jobs. Well, right away they weed out 1,000 applicants that they don't even bring in just based on the paperwork and how it was filled out and what was said. So they bring in 200. The very first thing the sergeant says is, if you've ever had a felony, a felony, convicted felony, a speeding ticket, or smoked weed, you need to leave right now. Oh, there goes 100 plus people. I said, look what happened. He's like, yeah, a bunch of people just got up and walked out of the room. Like a lot. He's like, yeah, a lot. It's a weeding out process. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, Luke's still in the process. I mean, they got it down to... 50, then 30, and now they're down about 22. With Long Beach Police, they had over 1,000. They're down to 122. I saw a young man at Calvary Downey last week who was there with Luke and is testing with the Long Beach Police, and he's in that 122, and so is Luke. They've cleared all their background and polygraphs and all that stuff. There's three Calvary kids in the, within that 122 to go to the academy in Long Beach, uh, Long Beach Police Department in the autumn. Luke's still in that mix. They won't all make it. 80, 80 will make it. But many are called, few are chosen. When Jesus turns around to a multitude and is like, you know, like, what do you seek? He said that, you know, earlier on in the Gospel of John, but like, here's how, here's how you get, here's how you separate the wheat from the chaff and the churchgoers from the disciples. Hey, unless you hate your mother, your wife, your kids, your brother, your sister, and your children, you're not worthy to follow me. And yes, unless you hate your own life, you're not worthy to follow me. That's an editing process, wouldn't you agree? There's no dancing in circles with the Ark of the Covenant and free, free raisin cakes in Jerusalem when the son of David comes the first time. There's just a multitude being swayed by evil people to say, away with him, away with him, crucify, crucify. And there are no exceptions because Jesus said to this multitude, if anyone, so there's no exceptions, Oh, I got a hookup. Pop works for Newport Police Department. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I got the backdoor hookup with Billabong or this company. Hey, I know this is the normal process, but I got into the uh, Naval Academy this way because, you know, my dad was the, uh, you know, the boss of the Pacific Fleet, McCain, John McLean. His dad was a boss of the Pacific Fleet during World War II. And during Vietnam, the other McCain. Like, there's, you can get, I'm not saying anything against it. I'm just saying you can get hookups. Like, there's exceptions. There's different ways you can get somewhere because of who you know, and you get a different standard than someone else gets. In fact, even 
at the Calvary uh, meeting last week with Pastor Jeff Johnson. He talked about the uh, affiliation process for Calvary Chapel Association. And there's this. You come from a Calvary. There's that if you don't come from a Calvary. And then there's a little bit of wiggle room here based upon circumstances of common sense. Yeah, there could be variables. But let me tell you something. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, there are no variables. There's not one standard for Devin Molina and a different one for Joey Baran. It is one and the same. Same for Donald Lindbergh and Susan Branch. We all come the same way. There's no, there's no shadow of turning with the Father of Lights. When Jesus turns the multitude and lays out three things that cannot exist if you're going to be his disciple, and he starts with his supremacy over every human relationship, he's just weeding out people who have the wrong idea what it means to follow Jesus. This is not Pharisees and Sadducees, lawyers, and, and a sect. This is the living God in the flesh who's holding the whole universe together and he's calling you to himself in a relationship through repentance from sin and faith in him. He is fulfilling all those Old Testament scriptures and he's here to die for our sins and he turns around and says to the multitude, if anyone comes after me, then these are the standards. Hey, you want to be a Navy SEAL? Well, here's the standards. You want to be pararescue? Here's the standards. You want to be a Green Beret? Hey, not everyone that joins the Army is meant to be a Green Beret or Special Forces, Delta Force, right? It's a higher standard. But there's only one standard for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Hey, let, let people go to church if they want to go to church. We want to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciple is one who learns from another with discipline. The word, of course, is rooted in the basic root word of discipline. To be disciplined in learning from another. When we give our life to Christ, we become disciples of Christ, and we are learning from the teacher, and Jesus is the teacher. He's the teacher. He's investing his life and our life by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then he does that, then we, when we disciple people, in a sense, we're just a conduit of his working in our life, through our lives, to bless other people and make disciples. Because Jesus said, go make disciples. But to make disciples, one must be a disciple, led so they can lead, and they're a conduit of the Holy Spirit. But disciple comes from the root word of disciplined to learn from another. And the beauty of this, and it is absolute beauty, is he says uh, to this great multitude, if anyone comes to me, this is very comforting because he's not calling people to forsake all for religiosity or human philosophies and worldly concepts and uh, various forms of pious living by which we establish self-righteousness by which God or gods have to accept us. That's not what he's doing. He's not calling anyone to a, uh, a set of rituals and things like that. He just is calling people to a relationship. And he says, if anyone comes to me. So it's anyone wants to come in human history to Jesus. If they're truly coming to Jesus, they are a disciple. It's not like there's different levels of it. It's not like you have a, a BA in being a Christian and then you've got a, a, a master's or a doctorate in being a disciple. It doesn't work like that. Or as, again, I mentioned this Tuesday night, that one of the most famous Billy Graham quotes is either Jesus Christ is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And in Spanish, he's El Señor, which means the Lord. You know, we think of Spanish talking about Jesus like, oh, Jesucristo. But that's not really at all in the churches in Chile and Latin America. When they talk about Jesus, they just say, El Señor, the Lord. El, es, el Señor, he is the Lord. 
de todo. Universal, el mundo, gentes. Es Lord of all over the universe, the world, and people. All people. So this is a challenging passage because Jesus is, it's, is, it's all inclusive. If anyone, he's not excluding anybody. What do you say in John? If anyone comes to me, I will not cast him out. The one who comes to me, I by no means cast out. There's a self-determination we're all held accountable for. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to do this, but you are not willing. So the accountability of self-determination. So if anyone, so he turns to this multitude, hey, it's about to get really turbulent on this flight. If anyone wants to come to me, it's anyone and you're coming to me. But these are the standards. These are the standards for Newport Beach Police Department, Long Beach Police Department, Air Force Academy, uh, Billabong employee, on staff at Calvary Costa Mesa. These are the standards. These are the standards. Uh, you're going to be a student at Calvary Chapel High School. This is the contract you sign as a student of Calvary Chapel High School. You smoke weed, you can get tossed. Boom, right? See, not everyone gets to go to Coast Calvary Chapel High School. You can go to Estancia or Mesa or other high schools, public schools. They can't turn you away unless you do something really bad. Then you get expelled, like I did. So there's no glory in that, trust me. But technically, you know, it's, you're not, just because you apply to go to Calvary Chapel High School doesn't mean you get into Calvary Chapel High School. There's standards. And to whom much is given, much is required. There's a higher standard. We're not entitled. No one's entitled to stand before the Lord and say, hey, you got to accept me into heaven. <laughs> no. No one's entitled. We're all created by the Lord, but we all exist for one of two reasons. To put our faith in the Lord and be saved, and then to fulfill his call in our life. That's it. Jesus is Lord of all. And because he is, has supremacy over his universe, outside of time, space, and matter, in time, space, and matter, then it stands the reason that the commitment has to be true. It has to be strong and true from the get-go. Um, as Pastor Chuck used to say, what you catch them with, you got to keep them with. And if you catch people for Christ with the wrong bait, if you will, in a soft sell or a faulty gospel, then they'll expect that. It is very important that people understand their need for salvation, their need for repentance, and that the good news is great news because before that, it's only bad news. And unless we acknowledge our sin and our need for a Savior, we cannot appreciate Jesus Christ didn't come to give us cute quotes about being more successful and, and living our dreams. He came to die on the cross and be beaten beyond recognition to save us from sin, death, the devil, and hell itself. And we can never forget that. For all the titles Jesus has, the most important one and the supreme one is Savior. Because he saves us people from their sins. We're saved from sin through him who died in our place. So when he calls us to himself in discipleship, and he says there's three cannots. So I, I, I do call, draw the comparison to Luke's experience with Newport Beach Police Department. You cannot have had a felony account. You cannot have had smoked weed, and you cannot have a speeding ticket. Okay, that was Luke's testimony that he shared in that meeting. Now, those are past tense things that you can't change. So if you were there and you're trying to become a policeman, one of six jobs at Newport Beach Police, then that's kind of a tough break for you if those things happen there. It's just the way it is. You know, there's consequences for our actions. But see what the Lord, the beauty of the Lord is, 
he can forgive you for the speeding ticket, the felonies, and the weed, right? Okay, <laughs> that's the whole idea. We're like he can, you know. So we're not trying to get in, get a job with the police department for Newport or Long Beach or Mesa or anywhere else. We're passing from death to life and becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. He'll meet anyone where we're at, no matter what our sins are. He's the Savior, and He paid the price for all sins. There's not one sin that anyone committed on this planet today that is so great God can't forgive them. Now, they might be hardened. They might be given over. As Pastor Chuck used to say, there's a line there that you know know how far it is and who crosses it. But we don't know who crosses it. And we should presume if anyone's alive, there's hope for them and God can flip them like that in a moment. We never want to lose hope for what the Lord can do in people's lives. So it's not about who we are and what we've done. It's about who we believe in and what we're willing to do in the moment. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today, do not harden your heart as in the wilderness. But it's today. Today is the day of salvation. It's so important to understand that with the gospel. But in that saving faith and saving grace through Jesus Christ, there is this call to weed out the multitudes because many are called but few are chosen. Many enter by the wide gate, uh, but it, it leads to death. Narrow is the way that leads to life and few enter thereby. There's a way that seems right to men, but the end is death. But Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We must make sure we're coming the right way. And the only way is in the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father, sustains the whole universe together, for whom all things are for, and is going to come again and rule and reign on this planet. And I just can't tell you how exciting it is for me to think when I really stop and meditate upon it, about Jesus Christ coming back to establish his righteousness on the planet. It's the best thing. It's when Jesus reigns from Mount Zion, it'll be the greatest thing that's ever happened in time, space, and matter. He's not coming on the, the foal of a donkey the second time. He's coming on the white horse in triumph with his people to establish his kingdom. And has not yet revealed what it will be like completely, but we know that when he comes in his glory, we will be in his glory with him. And that's good motivation to count the cost of discipleship. Now, there's three things. So that first one is relationships. It's human relationships. Does not. There's three does not. Okay, you might have caught them, there's three of them. The first one is, so it's a great multitude, he's weeding it out, it's anyone, it's open for all inclusive, but it's exclusive to him, to me. So the word hater, so this first one we look at clearly is, it, it upsets you when you read it in English. Like, wow, why, is Jesus teaching hate? Well, first of all, when we come to passages that are difficult, we need to interpret scripture by scripture. We know God is love, right? We know God is love. It's his character, it's in his it's who he is. We know that God so loved the world that he gave his son. We know that he loved us first, and that's why we love him. We know that Jesus said the proof of being his disciples is what? That we love one another. So we know whatever Jesus is teaching here, it's not contrary to his character, what he taught, what he demonstrated, and what he's accomplishing in his church to this day on this planet, on this uh, early in September of 2018. God is love, and the, the commandment is, the great commandment, of course, is you have no gods before God. Hero Israel, the Lord God is one, and we'll have no gods before him. And when summarizing the law of God from the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. We understand that. And the others like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So 
really just letting Scripture interpret Scripture on this first point. Jesus isn't advocating hate as we think of hate. But he is making it clear you can't serve two masters. You ever notice that? Like, you can't serve two masters. You, you can't serve two masters. It's a universal principle. It's like gravity as a physical law. And sowing and reaping is a spiritual law. Another spiritual law in this universe is you cannot serve two masters. It's impossible. It's, God has not allowed it in how we're made up as human beings that we can be in love with two people. That's why God made it so clear that, okay, first of all, he is worthy to be loved before all, right? I mean, whoever you maybe fell in love with, your spouse, let's say that person, that woman, that man, whatever, or future or present, whatever, they still have shortcomings, some more than others, right? But God's love is perfect. There are no character flaws in God. And he died on the cross for you and me. The great suffering he went through in a human body for you and me. His love is proven and it's perfect. There is no shortcoming. There's no shadow of turning in his love for us. He's 100% perfect and he does all things well. He didn't come to counsel the law, but to fulfill it, the law and the prophets. So Jesus said to the multitude, you're not following a religion or the Pharisees or the Sadducees. I'm not some rabbi that's part of an organization. You're following me. And Jesus said before Abraham, I am. He said, I'm God. I'm God of the burning bush. And they knew exactly what he meant because they took up stones to throw them at him because they considered it blasphemy. Why did they put him on the cross? Because he claimed to be God. Because he is God. So, there's no other human leader that's ever lived that could call people to themselves to take them to heaven. It's impossible. But Jesus is God and lived the perfect sinless life in our place and died in our place. And then his righteousness is imputed to us. So he pays for our sins and then his righteous life is reckoned to our account. This is the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one else has done that. By this we know love. I mean, they took the Greek word uh, agape, a classic word that wasn't really in use. It was archaic. And then the Holy Spirit took that word and said, that's my word. And this is the word we're going to use to describe what the cross is all about. That word was, it's like if we took some old word like thou art, and suddenly the millennials decide to say, let's start saying thou. So Jack and the bands are saying, thou has quite the nice uh, tune on that song, you know, or thou played wonderfully. And you brought back an archaic word from the King James of 1730s or whatever, and we brought it back and said, wow, isn't that cool? Check this out. Like, or how about groovy? What if we brought back groovy? Can you see all the millennials at the coffee shop like, yo, bro, totally groovy, man. It's an archaic word, okay? But can you imagine all the millennials like, dude, groovy, yeah, far out. You're just like, what? Oh my goodness, it's embarrassing, right? So archaic words. There's always new words coming, right? Languages are fluid. Okay, so agape was an, an archaic word at the time of the New Testament. But the Holy Spirit took that word along with Jesus and made that word identified with one thing, Jesus dying on the cross. This is the ultimate highest standard of love. It's the highest I- ideal of love. Greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends. And we are told that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. And that word for love to describe that is agape. Totally unconditional selfish. Death to self to the benefit of others, even to the point of death. That's agape. 
And God took that word that was archaic in the first century and made it his word that is forever with us for all human history till, till Christ comes back. Agape is a word that we all understand because we associate it with the cross. When I say Jesus is heaven and heaven is Jesus, agape is Jesus. Jesus is love. Love is Jesus. Jesus is agape. They, they just, it's, it, it goes together. It's synonymous. So when Jesus says that he, he, so if he's supreme and his love is perfect and we can trust in that love and the great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is not only common sense or reasonable, it's the purpose of existence because God doesn't force us to love him. It's a choice because love always has a choice. So it's the ultimate expression of our response to him. He's already shown us love and our, our choice of faith is to Trust him in his word, his character, and what he's done, and his promises, and reciprocate that love. And he will never let us down. God is love, and he is worthy of to be supreme in our hearts, Lord of all, to be loved with every cell in our body over anything that could ever come against it, including all human relationships. Spouse, children. Oh, and we love our children. Parents. Sometimes we love them, sometimes we don't, right? Siblings, eh, you know, right? <laughs> Look at this. So Jesus says he's supreme over all the human relationships as we understand them, above us, beside us, and beneath us. All those dynamic human relationships that bond families on earth that makes human beings tribal in all cultures, in all societies throughout human history. Jesus says he is Lord of it all. And if he cannot be Lord and first in your life, you reciprocate in the love that he's proven to you. You are not worthy to be his disciple and neither am I. We need to understand who he is and what he's done for us. And he has to reign supreme. He has to be first because we'll have no other gods before the Lord our God. And if anyone supplants Jesus being supreme in our hearts, that person, spouse, child, parent, sibling, grandchild, they become an idol of our heart. And we commit idolatry. And we will make decisions based upon obeying them or serving them over the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, who has supremacy in our life, who is Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's reasonable. We might make most good decisions on behalf of our spouse or our children or our parents that would be harmonious with the Lord in some cases, but people choose people over the Lord. Think how many people have missed salvation because of a human relationship. Think how many people in human history have missed the call of God because of a human relationship. Oh, I first got to go bury my father. And what did Jesus say? Hey, let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. As an excuse. Well, that seems kind of harsh. Hey, don't we want to take care of our elderly parents? Yeah, but not at the expense of obeying the call of God. If you obey the call of God, he'll equip you to take care of your elderly parents. Hey, I can't imagine taking care of your elderly parents without being in obedience to the Lord and being led by the Lord to do it. It's hard enough when you're spirit-filled. It's almost impossible to take care of your elderly parents without the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how people do it. Jesus has supremacy over every human relation because he made you for him. And the wisest thing and the, and the most reasonable thing in our cognitive thinking that we could ever do is reciprocate that love because it's perfect love that we're responding to. And since we can 
trust him like David said in Psalm 18. As for God, his way is perfect and the word Lord is proven. He's a shield to all those who trust in him. His will is perfect. His perfect love is received. It's responded to. And then we can trust his perfect love over everything in our life. And he'll give us his perfect love guiding us. And he's poured out the Holy Spirit to broaden our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been shed upon our hearts, Romans 5, to love the people who think we should put them before the Lord and maybe come against us because we don't put them before the Lord. Spouse, children, grandchildren, parents, siblings. How many people have missed salvation in the call of God because they've put a human soul on the throne of their hearts instead of the living God, Jesus Christ. We do not want to make that mistake. Jesus said, he just said, he's not forcing people. Like, hey, you can do what you want for 80 years in the human experience. You know, like Elijah, hey, if Baal's Baal, then worship Baal, whatever. If the Lord's the Lord, worship him. God doesn't force himself on anybody. You want to train wreck your life from here to eternity and be out of your mind in your last days when you're 90 or whatever? That's blaspheming the Lord. That's your business. He'll let you do that. That's self-determination and free will. But if you're going to receive salvation and, and he, the upper call of God in Christ Jesus, he's going to be Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He got things done on the cross and there's things he, want to do, he wants to do in our life and we need to obey him, the obvious and the personal. Or he's not Lord. And there are people like, oh, if I can think of my own life, if I had obeyed uh, my parents... Just my mom alone. I can use, uh, I mean, we don't, I don't want to use my mom's example because I love my mom. So, but (laughs) I wouldn't be an evangelical pastor in the Calvary Chapel movement if I obeyed my mom in the 80s. All right, let's just, we just put that one right there. Nobody, when you breathe your last, there's no human relationship that can stare down the grave on your behalf and take you through the chasm of the valley of the shadow of death. Only Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. I want to be surrounded by people I love and family when I'm going, but they got my back on this side, but when it gets flipped, man, I got Jesus coming from that side. That's just the way it works. And wise is the woman and the man who understands that. Don't be offended if someone... You need to learn to respect people's ability to make decisions between them and the Lord, the, the priesthood of all believers, and the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's very important to respect that. When Sam Coke was like, hey, we need to go to Pennsylvania, we say, good, man, praise the Lord, go for it. When Roald Diaz was like, hey, I think we're called to go to DFW and move to Texas, great, go for it. We're not trying to hold anybody back. We train, we disciple people to hear the voice of the Lord directly as disciples so they can discern for themselves what God's calling them to do. That's, that's, we're equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. We're not trying to lord over anybody's lives. We're trying to build up one another and encourage one another in our journey. Another dude uh, cannot be a disciple. You cannot be his disciple if we don't bear our cross. You know, the Romans were so ruthless. The Syrians are pretty bad too. Actually, they're all bad. Um, but the Romans, man, crucifixion was just designed to be terrifying as Rome conquered the world. So from uh, the time of uh, the Roman Republic before Julius Caesar and Pompey and all those guys, 550 BC to, you know, Cleopatra and all that stuff, Mark Anthony all connected there. And then the empire after that, like Augustus and, you know, uh, Nero. Roman generals and rulers, emperors, who actually became deity in their own minds, they saw the value of crucifixion for sheer terror upon people. 
They would conquer people and crucify them. No one went to the cross for a second chance. They went to the cross to be executed and to strike fear through brutality in the lives of people who walked by them. And you might be on the cross because you're a criminal, or you might be on the cross because in your homeland, like the, like the Gauls, the, the forerunners to the French, you chose to fight Rome, or the Germanic tribes, and you chose to fight Rome. They came to your area, and like the Jewish zealots, uh, you chose to fight for your land, and you were conquered. And when they conquered you, they crucified you to strike terror in your friends and your neighbors of your village and the next village over so that they wouldn't resist Rome as well. Crucifixion, so brutal and so absolutely death. So when Jesus says this before he goes to the cross and he says, unless you bear your cross, you can't come after me. Can you imagine the multitude going like, oh, oh. Let's get context here, WG. He said, he's, in their mind, they just picture, there's no soft landing. Naked people crucified publicly for humiliation. And he says, unless you bear your cross, you can't come after me. Like, that's not how you build church membership. That's not how you build a following of let's all, it just doesn't, this, this second you cannot is just so uh, contextually magnanimous. It's huge. Now, when he was on the cross and his disciples saw that, and when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and the church went out after that, people could then, it's a softer landing, right? It's a softer landing when, you know, Luke's being led by the Holy Spirit to write this and this is being distributed in the Roman Empire. Hey, bury your cross. Well, and the various pastors throughout the Roman Empire might say, hey, you know, Jesus bore his cross. But when he said this, they didn't know that. They thought he was going to Jerusalem to establish the kingdom and be like David and dance before the Father. That's what they thought. He's like, no, no, no. You cannot be my disciple unless you bear your cross. In the context, such a powerful, profound statement. Again, hey, he's not forcing himself on anybody. You can do what you want to do. You want to live for Caesar? Greek hedonism, it's your choice. You got one line, it's your choice, it's your stewardship. It's like when we pick the U.S. team and certain kids get selected and then they don't come to any training, whatever, it's like, hey, that was your stewardship. That was your opportunity. There's a great kid on the Chilean team a couple years ago. He surfed really good for us in Oceanside. He was probably the best junior surfer in all of Chile. The next year, he was, he was, he was, he was going to be our star, like our star running back for high school football. He started smoking weed. Local municipality pulled their sponsorship of him. He didn't surf for us in the Azores and that was the end of him. I've never seen him even around again. That was his opportunity, one and done. They told me in Chile, you get one chance like that where the local municipalities sponsor you to do something great, you represent the community, you're on the national team, you smoke weed, you don't do things, you're gone. Then you had his chance. Some countries give you more than others, some give you less. God gives you a whole lifetime to do what you want to do. He didn't say you have to be a Navy SEAL, you can choose to be a Navy SEAL. Just know the standards are high. Bear your cross. And who knows what that looks like, but know this, it's a death sentence to our pride, our flesh, and everything that's contrary to the best interest of our lives for time and eternity and the people we love and care about. See, if we bear our cross, then we're a greater blessing to the people that are second to the Lord in our life. But if it's all about us and those people, we, we don't, if we don't bear our cross, we put people before the Lord, but we do church and religion, we're not, it's all, it's all out of order. The order is Christ first, bear your cross, 
And then as we bear our cross and let the Holy Spirit crucify our flesh and our pride and all these things that are, uh, hinder us as husbands and adult children and grandchildren and, all, and adult siblings. But when we bear our cross and Christ is first, then we become a great blessing to those people and we love them with the love of God to their benefit and society. We bear our cross, we learn to just, we learn to not talk so quickly, to think a little more, and to consider others before we have to defend ourselves or feel called to defend ourselves. The cross is a brutal place of a death sentence. And Jesus said, we cannot be his disciple unless we bear our cross. And then the third one he said is so likewise, verse 33, whoever you does not forsake all that he cannot be my disciple. So the, last, so the first one is he's over people. The second one is he's supreme Lord for death sentence of our pride and our flesh and son of Adam, daughter of Eve. But the thir- so it's us. The third one is our pursuits. We cannot put any pursuit before him. We saw last week that, hey, you know, I got this and I got new investments. And verse 18 of the previous, early on in this chapter last week, it says, with one accord, they began to make excuses. I bought a piece of ground. I got five oxen. I just got married. I can't come. Jesus said, yeah, no excuses. Just Jesus has to be before every pursuit. Every dream needs to be subject to the supremacy of Christ. Every passion needs to be subject to the supremacy of Christ. Every goal needs to be subject to the supremacy of Christ. And we are wise to heed what Solomon, the great king, said that uh, to, to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and to lean not on our own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all of our ways and let him direct our paths. And James in the early church said, hey, you who say we're going to do this and that and everything, you ought to just say if the Lord wills, we'll do this and maybe we'll do that. And Jesus said, don't worry about anything. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness this day. And he's got, we got your back. Tomorrow will take care of itself. And we talked about this recently, that the key to being really fruitful for the Lord is to just to live in the moment of the day. We can't go back and undo the mistakes of yesterday or other people's mistakes of yesterday. We can make good decisions for today, and we can have a vision for good things for the future tomorrow with the Lord. But ultimately, one of these days is going to be our last day, and that vision is going to be surrendered to the Lord because we won't be around to see it fulfilled. We'll pass that baton and that vision on to someone else. See, a lot of people dream big dreams and have big plans and all these different things, and then, and then they, they, they try and put the Lord on it like a caboose, like they're the engine, and they attach the Lord and God's will to the back of the train like he's the caboose. Jesus is driving this train. It's faith, fact, feeling, as Bill Bright used to say with the Camp Crusade, and we need to put everything before the Lord. You say, like, Lord... Like, when you want to quit, you can put that before the Lord and have him say, no, you're not going anywhere. Just bear your cross. When you want to stand, he says, no, it's time to go. And you take steps of faith. I like my comfort zone. I like my house. I like my job. No, 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 no. That's it. You live by faith. There's a whole new chapter for you. See, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, not in the fire or in the earthquake, Elijah, but he speaks as a still small voice. And if Christ is supreme and Lord over all in our life before all other relationships, if we bear our cross and follow him sincerely and we submit our goals and dreams and ambitions to him, he will guide it all and he will be Lord of all and our life will be joyful 
fulfilling and fruitful. And there'll be no regrets at the end. The person who comes forward from this multitude, as people walked away, if you are the woman and you're the guy that says, you know what, Lord, I'm with you. All right, let's get on with this. Those people were fruitful in their generation. And there's been people in the name of Jesus been fruitful in every generation. And we want to be these people in this generation. It's an unusual time on planet Earth, but isn't every generation an unusual time on planet Earth? This is our time. And this is the cost of discipleship. We're not Bonhoeffer writing the book during Nazi Germany or the Church of Jesus Christ in 2018 living because he wrote the famous book, Cost of Discipleship. This is cost of discipleship. It's a reasonable cost. And it's to our own blessing, our own benefits, and the benefit of the people we love and all of humanity for all eternity. Do you want to hear Jesus say, well done and good faithful servant? I ask that again. Do you want to hear Jesus say, because we're going to breathe our last. When you flip the other side, do you want to hear him say, good, good, uh, good and faithful servant, well done? Yeah. This is the game plan. This is the playbook. Jesus, Lord of all, everything, every day, till the last breath. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word here tonight and its application to our lives.